How many of you like mysteries? Either read, reading them or watching them on TV? Let me see. Oh, wow, most of you. Oh, it's a very popular genre, isn't it? You know, there are um, a couple different types of mysteries that I'm familiar with. I'm not the biggest mystery reader. Nancy reads a lot more than I do. But uh, occasionally I read them and enjoy them. And uh, when I think about mysteries, I think typically of you're trying to solve a crime or a puzzle or something. And as the story unfolds, you're given more and more evidence to try to figure out what exactly it is that's uh, what happened, in other words. But then there's another type of mystery that I kind of enjoy because I, I don't like suspense. So it drives Nancy crazy. I take a book and I read the last chapter first. I just want to know the answer. You know? <laughs> it's kind of the way life is. You read the first chapter, read the last chapter, and then you can enjoy the ride. So I'm not a suspense type person. And um, maybe that says something about our marriage that you like suspense. I don't know. So do you, how many of you remember the old Columbo series? Yeah? Some of you older people? I saw a young person raise their hand. Oh, wow, okay. Where the, 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 the answer is given to you up front. And then the rest of the story is you have to figure out how it happened. Right? We actually see both of those kinds of mystery in the scriptures, I think. When you look at the Gospels, for instance, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are organized more along the lines of a traditional mystery. You start off with a piece of information, but you don't really know what it's about. So it's a genealogy. Both Matthew and Luke start with a genealogy. And then you kind of, as a story unfolds, you're getting more and more information, and there comes a point when you say, ah, Jesus is the Messiah. John, on the other hand, is more like the Columbo mystery. Right up front, bang. First thing he says is Jesus is God. You got two verses, and you figured it out. Okay, and but then you don't know how it happened. So the whole story then is about how in the world is this possible that a man could become God? So I like that. I like those kind of mysteries. Today, we're actually going to talk about a mystery, but it's a little bit different than the mystery that we're used to. Mystery was a very common um, way of figuring out life in the ancient world. But you have to grasp the culture of the time for the mystery to make sense. So let's step back again, as we've done many times, 2,000 years ago, into what the world was like in the first century Roman Empire. It's very, very, very different in every way you can think of than today. Not only technology and the way we live life, but the way we think. Our philosophy was very different. So in the ancient world, they didn't understand the laws of physics, all the things of science, the, the, whole, the way we look at the world intellectually. They didn't view the world that way. It wasn't a linear world to them. They didn't conceive of that. Their world was based largely on superstition. And I'm using it in a technical sense of that word, where you have a strong belief in things that you can't see. So their world was based in superstition, and, and, and something as simple as when it rains. Uh, it rains, plants grow. What's that all about? Well, I have somebody I can go to, Tim Glasgow, and I can ask him what happens when it rains, and he can tell me the answer, because I don't have a clue. And... Uh, but they had nobody to go to. They couldn't figure that out. Tim, you're going to be tired of me using you as an example, aren't you? You can tell I'm really enraptured by this whole plant thing because of the words you've given me. So, but they didn't have any clue, and it was, it was uh, very superstitious to them. Somehow the gods did something to make the plants grow when it rained. So they created all these rituals that would entice the gods to make it rain. That was how they thought about it. They didn't understand why or what happened, and all of life was that way. So picture how hard it would be, almost dark for us, 
to be in a world where we, we didn't grasp what was going on around us. And our only solution was that somehow the gods made it happen. It'd be a different way of thinking about things, wouldn't it? And not only that, but you have a whole plethora of gods. I mean, in Hinduism today, there's 334 million gods. I have no idea who ever counted them. I don't even know how you serve that many gods. Especially when they uh, vie for power. They vie for attention all through the history of the world. Um, religions that believed in multiple gods, you always have this vying for power. Which god is in the most powerful? Which god's not the most powerful? So when you go overseas to India or Nepal, in fact, two weeks from today on Sunday, I'll be in Kathmandu, Nepal, um, Lord willing, being a blessing to the nations by teaching at a Bible college in Kathmandu. And uh, if it works out right and electricity holds up, you'll see a video of me in Kathmandu in two weeks. But I'll be there. And um, uh, it's in each of the regions where I go, they have the one God that has managed to protect them, and that's who they worship. It's like our God is hopefully bigger than your God, so I'm going to pay homage to this God so that he'll continue to protect me. That's how they thought about it. It's very foreign to us. We don't, we don't think that way today. So these gods that they had, it was a dark world. The, the gods weren't there to be your friends. You didn't have a personal relationship with them. Their responsibility was to hold the world together, to make sure it rained and the trees grew, plants grew, and other things in life. So what they did was they would appease these gods, and they would do everything they could just to keep them happy. That's the way they thought about it. Let's keep the gods happy. Let's don't upset them. Uh, we don't want the gods angry with us. They didn't look to them as examples of how to live life, so they weren't looking to them for virtues that would we could live through. They weren't examples to us. They were pretty much, we leave them alone. We feed them, honor them, worship them, so that they'll keep the world chugging along. So the gods had the secrets to the world. They knew what was going on, and um, there's no way we could figure that out. That's what the ancient idea of a mystery is. There's no way we can figure it out by looking at the uh, evidence around us. If the gods didn't communicate, then we would never know what would happen. So this gave rise to all kinds of ancient mystery religions where they created all kinds of what they called divination practices in order to divine the truth, because how in the world are you going to figure out the truth if the gods are communicating? Then they're pretty much stone idols. You go over today and there's a calf, a stone calf right there. And this is a god, and how's it going to talk to you? Because concrete doesn't talk. Stone doesn't talk, right? Rocks don't talk. And so you have to figure out what the gods were thinking. So they created all these divination or superstitious practices, something as simple as they would take the heart of a small animal and whack it in half and let it fall open. And depending on how it lay, they had detailed manuscripts of, depending on how it fell, would communicate something to us about what the gods were saying. It's very foreign to our world, isn't it? These are the mystery religions. If you're interested in reading any of their literature, I've got the, the books in my office. Pretty fascinating reading. Let me just say that having read them, I'm glad I live in today's world and I serve the one true God because he does communicate. And so the concept of mystery was something that you could not figure out unless a God revealed it. If he revealed it, then you were given a glimpse into um, truth that you couldn't see. Way back in Ephesians chapter 1, when we started five weeks ago, whenever it was, 
He said, I'm starting in verse 7 for those that want to follow along. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavishes on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. There it is. He made known. So God made known to us the mystery of his will. What? God spoke? God actually revealed something to us? He did. He revealed to us something that we couldn't figure out on our own. And then he says, this will was according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Okay, we can relax. The gods are not unhappy. This is wonderful language. The one true living God says, I'm going to reveal the truth about my will. And it comes, it's rooted in my pleasure. My good pleasure. Pleasure of what? My good pleasure of you and all of creation. I made you. I love you. And I am pleased. So I'm going to uh, reveal to you the mystery of my will. Now think about that just for a second. We actually live with this every day. There's no way you could ever know what I'm thinking had I chosen not to reveal it to you. Right? It's not possible. So then you look in the Corinthian epistles and he said, no one knows the spirit of a person except the spirit that lives within that person. It's true. You have no idea what I'm thinking if I choose not to tell you. I could deceive you all day long. If you want to know what I'm really like, don't listen to me. Go ask Nancy or my kids. They will tell you. They're not bashful. And then it goes on. It says, even so, God has given us his spirit so that we might know the deep things of God. Now pause and reflect on that just for a second. I don't want you to have my spirit. It's still broken. There's still parts of me that would embarrass me if they were to be revealed. But that's the only way you're going to know who I am, is if I decide to reveal to you the truth about me. In fact, transparency is what builds trust. That's why I use myself as an example, and occasionally Nancy, as an example for you, so you get to know me. So God has given us his spirit, according to the Corinthian epistles, so that we might know the deep things of God. Do you recognize how wonderful and generous and sacrificial that is and how loving it is that God would do that? So he tells us right up front, this mystery that I'm about to reveal to you, we don't know what it is yet, do we? Because he hadn't said. This mystery is rooted in my good pleasure of you. I can't wait to tell you the secret. That's another part of the ancient mystery religions is that you weren't allowed to be a part of the religion um, because it was a very exclusive club. You had to know the secret password, the handshake, whatever, to get in, to even get into the mystery religion so then that you could work on figuring out what it is the gods are communicating. And if you weren't part of that, you couldn't get in. If you walk in today to uh, any of the temples overseas, I've been to Hindu and Buddhist temples, they have a place that you can't go beyond it. And a part of me says, curiously, really what's going on, I want to know what's going on behind the wall, the part that I can't see. That's part of the mystery religions. They wouldn't let you in. And yet our God just opened the doors for everyone to see the truth. So what is that truth? He hasn't told us yet. Hopefully, if I've done my job of helping you capture the first century world, you're sitting there going, what is that truth? What is the mystery that God revealed? 
when we reveal the mystery, when we read it, you're going to go, well, yeah. But picture if you had never known this truth when you read it. Okay? All right. We're in the middle of a series in Ephesians called Waking the Dead. What happens when the dead wake up? Ephesians says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you've been made alive together with Christ. And so we're seated at the he- in the heavenlies right now. Right now, this very second. I can't figure out how, but I believe it. So somehow I live in two worlds at the same time. And so when the dead wake up, what happens? We've argued several things. We've argued that ethnic reconciliation begins to occur. If anybody should know how to reconcile, it should be us as Christians because we've been reconciled to God. And therefore we've been reconciled to each other. We should know how to do that. We also talked about we become a blessing to the nations. Remember you've heard that language? In that we reflect the glory of the Lord outward to the nations around us. We talked about the fact that when you become, when you wake up, you join the human race. In other words, you're brought to life and you begin for the first time to uh, move toward what you were created to be all along. You learn how to love better. You learn how to be more generous. You learn how to help people. That's what we're created for, to be that way. So the technical term is that we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And what that means is Christ is the perfect human. You can take a look at Christ and see him, what a human looks like, and that's what we're becoming. So Christ knew how to love very, very well. He knew how to step into messy situations and, and just make the people there feel, uh, depending on what he wanted to, either love, uh, like the woman caught in adultery in John 8, or very uncomfortable, like the Pharisees. He knew how to do that. So Jesus represents what a true human looks like, and that's what we're becoming. We're becoming true humans. So what are we going to find today? We're going to look at this mystery. It's in Ephesians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles or you have a tablet or smartphone or whatever you have, pull it out, turn it on. I love looking out there and seeing the glow on your faces of the screens as they light up. And if you're texting, have fun. And if you're checking your fantasy football scores, I hope you win. I should assign somebody to check my fantasy football score. Then they could tell me if I'm winning or not. I'm just kidding. Okay, Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. All right, this is written to us right here at Dillon Community Church. This is us. We have not been allowed into the secret chambers of the temple. We are not part of the in club of Judaism. We're not allowed to know the inside, the secrets of obeying the law because we're Gentiles. We're not Jewish proselytes. And so we're about to step into this wonderful place and learn the truth. Verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul saying, I am responsible to bring the gospel to you, and I have done that. That is, verse 3, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. He just said in chapter 1, God had revealed the mystery. He hadn't said what it is yet. He's about to. Verse 4, in reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations and has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. One thing you learn about Paul, Paul loves to write cascading phrases and clauses. He loves to just tack on verse, phrase after phrase after phrase. Uh, in fact, 
most of these are long, long sentences in Greek, and we put periods there to help our pastors in the middle. So we break them up into sentences in English. But Paul, when he gets going, he gets so excited. That's how I view it. He can't stop. He just goes and goes and goes. And that's, you're going to see this today. So it's been revealed now. Now we see it. Here it is, verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Prior to this verse, we didn't know. Can you imagine living in a world where you didn't know? That's what happened. Prior to this right here, we simply didn't know. You mean we're included? Yeah, we are. You mean we don't have to keep all the rituals of the law? No, we don't. You mean we have access to God? We do. The, the, the one true God? Yeah, the one true God. You mean he finds pleasure in me? Yes, he does. You mean he's excited about me enough that he wants to tell me a divine mystery, a secret? Yes, he does. Prior to this, we didn't know. It's hard for us to imagine because we live way downstream and we have 2,000 years of reflection. Keep working on picturing it right here when you read this passage for the first time. Me? Yeah. <laughs> I'm included. I belong. I have been chosen. Just like in middle school when you divvy up and you start picking baseball, team, baseball players to play on the team. I pick you. Well, I pick you. I told you I'm an asthmatic. I was always the last one to get picked. Me? Yeah, me. I'm included? I'm included. Right there. There it is. This is one of those most profound verses in the Bible. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So if we're heirs, what do we inherit? Isn't that a logical first question? We're heirs together, what do we inherit? Well, imagine you'd never read the Bible. You don't know the answer to that question. And so all of a sudden, you're told, if you happen to be in Asia Minor, and this happens to be the first part of the Bible you've received, I'm an heir. An heir of what? Well, let's go back and start reading and figuring it out. All of a sudden, you stumble across passages like Matthew, where Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the... The what? The earth. The earth. I, I get to inherit the earth? I, I mean, I own part of it? Yeah. And then all of a sudden you get to First Peter and you see that God's going to take this earth and refashion it into something, I don't know how, but something more beautiful than that. Right there. Really? And I inherit that? I do. And then all of a sudden you stumble across passages about God's mercy, his riches, his unfathomable, unending riches. You mean I, 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 in, I inherit the riches of God? I do. 
Then you begin to read about this power that's working deeply in us and through us daily. Wow, I inherit that too? You do. I do. Do you see how this begins to open up this whole world that the Gentiles had no idea about? And as you begin to search through the scriptures and you begin to find all these promises of blessing and how rich, how rich is our God? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We could start there. What about the whole universe? Can I inherit all that? I do. That's a profound statement. Then look what he says in verse 7. He begins to talk about this a little bit. So what? What does this mystery reveal? Remember, he's excited and he's going to start unfolding. If you could take away all the periods and you see these ideas just start to unfold and cascade out one at a time. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Pause. What power? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. When you get up in the morning, do you get up and realize that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's going to guide you through life today? Do you think that way? Or do you get up and go, oh boy, another day of work. Or maybe you're excited about your work. When's the last time you got up and said, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead, his spirit is going to demonstrate that power in my life today. We talked a couple weeks ago about uh, the good works which have been prepared beforehand. Life is like a treasure hunt. You don't have to create good works. They stumble your way. You trip over them. You have opportunities all day long. We often miss them because they don't look like good works to us. It's doing something that costs you. It's doing something that sometimes you have to pay to help someone else out. But that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit is working that same power in your individual lives. Is that amazing to you? I just got back. Mark mentioned that we're going to take a special offering for uh, uh, Rocky Mountain Evangelical Church in Estes Park. I just spent two days there speaking at a retreat, and I met with Jess Mann, their pastor, for three hours. By the way, he sends his greetings to those of you who know him, and uh, he rattled off a whole bunch of names. We had a fantastic time, he and his wife and I, and he took me on a tour of um, the town because I really wanted to see what does it look like. And he said, okay, your first glimpse is you won't be able to see the destruction until I start to point it out. So we took, and that's sure enough what happened. And it reminded me kind of, of of our life, that often we don't see the power at work in us. We have to begin to pay attention to it. So we're driving along, and we drove to Confluence Park, and he said, you see that bridge there? And I said, yeah, but he goes, the water was up to that bridge. And I glanced over at the buildings that were below the bridge. And I said, well, that means, and he goes, exactly. If you look very carefully, you can see the water line near the top where the roof was. Those businesses are all out of business now. It's empty. So then we drove a little bit further down the road. And um, I said, what's all the yellow tape around those businesses? So they've been condemned. Those businesses are now out of business. And they're dragging everything out. And they're probably going to tear the buildings down and start over again. Businesses that Nancy and I have been in. We spent our honeymoon there. We've been there many times. So then he drove us up 36. He drives me up 36. And we stop and get out. And 36, the, the road comes to an end. <laughs> and you just drop off into this chasm. 
There's no road. Highway's gone. And then this little tiny creek that used to wind its way through the town, uh, maybe four to six feet wide in water, you're going to see some of these in a video at the end of service, is now 30 yards wide. It's as wide as this room, a canyon. Whole lots are gone. Backs of houses are missing. And they don't know where they are. They just fell into the river and took off. I talked to one lady who says, we, we, we have two cars, but we don't know where they are. So what do you mean you don't know where they are? Well, they're in the driveway, and the driveway disappeared, and the cars disappeared, and they're downstream. We haven't found them yet. They're gone. All the sewage systems are gone, just wiped out. The infrastructure, you see just pipes hanging out there. The waterways are contaminated. So they have, Estes Park is now a no-flush zone, and they have, uh, they have these porta-potties every three to four houses. And uh, the city said they're going to be there for six to nine months. Okay, it's zero degrees outside, and there's two feet of snow on the ground. Uh, sweetheart, I have to go use the bathroom. I'll be back. Where's the shovel? That's real life. So they've started a competition to see who can write the funniest things on these porta potties. <laughs> so outside of the church, for a good time, come inside. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing their best to make fun, to laugh with it. Um, I don't know what life was like like that. I haven't been through that. But the power that I experienced was, was, it was beyond breathtaking. And that's just a torrent of water from rain. It turned my stomach. My stomach was in knots as I was watching what was happening. In this little church, they've already dug out 75 homes help people clean out and dig the mud out and get them out. Most of them are not believers. They've not been to church. They're not members of their church. They're just helping people. And so we decided as a church to help them. You'll hear more about that. Power is an amazing thing. And this is just from rain. So listen to this. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And we, so often, we just overlook this and move on. And yet, the power of God is phenomenal. It's just breathtaking when you stop and explore it and pay attention to it. He goes on. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. Okay, pause. This is not a rhetorical statement. This is the man who um, had the authority of the Sanhedrin to kill Christians. His whole mission was to stop Christianity. He had the finest training in the land. He had been raised from birth, he says. The right tribe, a Pharisee, not just a Pharisee, but a Pharisee of Pharisees. This guy was the elite. He was up there. He studied under Gamaliel, perhaps the best teacher in the history of Israel. He had the finest training in the land. I like to say he has the equivalent of a doctorate or more. And then in one blinding flash of light, he found out that he was wrong. Most of us, our theology gets, theology gets challenged little bit by little bit, incrementally, because we can't handle the trauma of finding out that everything we believe is wrong. For Paul, that all happened in one second. Galatians tells us he disappeared, I think, into Arabia for three years, went to the desert. I, I, I can't blame him for that. What do I believe is true and what is not true anymore? I have no idea. When Jesus said, why are you persecuting me, Saul? He realized his whole thinking was wrong. His, his total thinking about the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, was wrong. And he had to rethink it. So when he says, I am uh, the least, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me. This is a statement of humility. God gave it to me to preach to the Gentiles 
the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers. Oh, pause. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. If I was God, I'd have never written the script this way. I would reflect my own wisdom. But he didn't do that. He chose to reflect his wisdom through the church. If you're part of a church, raise your hand. Welcome to the real world. God is displaying his wisdom through you. That's your role. Isn't that wild? Verse 11, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. This is so unlike the first century. We don't have to worry about this God? No. He already said he revealed this mystery out of his good pleasure, his pleasure about you, his deep love for you, his power that's working in you. You can approach this God with confidence, with confidence. See it? With freedom. You don't have to be afraid. You now truly serve the God who is the biggest God of all. And we would argue the only God. But in the first century world where they served a pantheon of gods, an assembly, on of, assembly of gods, you serve the one God who is the God of all. You found him. You no longer have to worry. Verse 13, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives this name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, there it is, his boundless love, his glorious riches. You see all that language? Out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power. There it is. With power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power. There it is again. May have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Do you see this? You hear this cascading words? Just, it's just pouring out of him. This is what this mystery means. All the fullness of God. He's praying that you would experience it. You'd be filled with it. When you get up in the morning, do you think that way? Let me encourage you to think that way. When you get up in the morning, it's okay to say, I get to experience the fullness of God and his power at work in me. Walt's one of my favorite people. He's becoming Walt Wieronski. I picture Walt fixing plumbing, broken plumbing systems. You know, a leaking valve. Something's broken. And when he fixes that, God is glorified and he reflects his glory. And he becomes a blessing to somebody. I did not realize how significant that was until I was this park and I saw the pipes hanging out. No place to go. And the waterways that are now contaminated. And then I even loved him even more. 
Every one of you. It doesn't matter if you're in high school. It doesn't matter if you're middle school. It doesn't matter if you're a mom, a father, if you have a job, a career. When you wake up in the morning, you become a blessing to people. That's what you were created for. And that's what he says. Now listen to his doxology. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his, there it is, power, that is at work within us. You mean this God is working in me? Yes, he is. According to that power, to him be the glory in the church. If you're a member of a church, raise your hand. Let me see him again. Welcome to the real world. You have, you have the privilege of reflecting the glory of this one true living God. No God ever asked that in the history of the world. No God ever said that was what we're going to do. And yet here's what he did. To, re, to reflect his glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.